Hello and welcome to BB On The Record, this podcast from British Bandsmen. I'm Mark Good, editor of British Bandsmen, and in this bumper episode, I hear from that globetrotting virtuoso of the euphonium, Stephen Mead. In a wide-ranging chat, Stephen discusses the importance of people continuing to play and keep up hope during the ongoing pandemic. He also reflects on his early musical life, from being handed a cornet in the Salvation Army, telling his careers advisor at school he wanted to play the euphonium, and glory years at Desford Colliery Band. Stephen examines the standard of euphonium playing today, discusses his hopes for a more criteria-based adjudication system, and chats about reconnecting with his fishing rods. All that and a cracking piece of the podcast. But first, for someone who usually spends much of his time flying from gig to gig, how have the past few months taken shape? I think my last gig was around the 14th of March. I just got back from the Netherlands on the same day pretty much that the European was cancelled and all my other gigs over the next two weeks got erased from the diary up until and including now. I had one trip during the summer. I went to Lithuania and Estonia, which have very, very low COVID rates. And the British rate was just low enough for me to travel without quarantine. So I, I feel very lucky that I had almost two weeks in the Baltic countries. But everything else is online. And we, we've, you know, like everyone else in the world, we've got used to this new situation, uh, which is hopefully temporary, but but recently extended <laughs> but I've, I've got a trip to Milan next week uh, which is on two-day trip to the conservatory to do a concert with a recital and some teaching so you know I, I may get a call in a week's time just before I go to say I'm so sorry you know we have to cancel it because you know so we're living in this rather strange situation where everything that we thought was permanent is now yeah, different. <laughs> Not to dwell too much on, on what hasn't happened, but how should 2020 have been shaping up for you? What sorts of travels perhaps have been cancelled or are put on hold? Oh, gosh. I, I, I feel more sad when I think about it, actually, because there was a trip to um, Australia and New Zealand and uh, Costa Rica, which was going to be in May, May, June. Um, there was a trip to China, a three-city tour to China that was off Battle Creek. How I miss the brass band of Battle Creek. It's only, tw it's only twice a year, but we, we lost uh, the spring concert and it looks like we're going to be losing early December. Um, lots of trips, masterclasses in, in Germany and Italy. To be honest, I had something every weekend from the beginning of February and till pretty much November. And a, a lot of it has been moved kind of back. Some some have been rescheduled definitely, some are to be confirmed. So, you know, but you know, Mark, every, every musician's in this situation, you know, just because my gig involved largely getting on planes, it doesn't make it any more important than somebody who was gonna go and sit and play second violin in the Halle Orchestra or an extra, you know, and all the people in London in the shows, we've all all taken a hit, you know. Clearly, you still had, as you mentioned, plenty of commitments to keep online for those which could go online. Yeah. But has this period given you an opportunity to immerse yourself in something away from the world of music? I don't know, have you been able to catch up on the gardening, perhaps? Yeah, actually, there have been some positive things, I must say. I mean, I'm, I like to think I'm a pretty positive person anyway. So when you suddenly get handed tons of free time that you didn't expect to have. So I completely renovated my uh, little summer house at the end of the garden. It had been falling in. It had been okay, but it, every time I looked out, it looked sad. So myself and a neighbor, we spent uh, a week redoing everything. I became an expert on the orbital sander which was a machine that I never owned, um, uh, decorated the house. We normally get painters in every six years to completely paint the, the front and back of the house. I did it all myself with a little bit of help from a neighbor. Uh, the garden's looking great. Uh, we now went ahead and made plans to have a conservatory built. So all that's fine. I did a lot more cycling uh, than I normally get round to do. Um, it's at least every two days now. 
the people in the little villages around here get used to a, a slow-moving cyclist in Lycra going past their windows every two days. <laughs> and, um, and fishing. I've, I've reconnected with my fishing rods. And uh, last week I went with my good friend Roger Webster. Um, we'd been talking about it for years and I, we agreed a date. It was a glorious afternoon and we both caught carp on a lake near me and and had a fantastic funny conversation for about three hours mm. as we've chatted about though of course it has been a difficult time for so many people not least those whose livelihoods have been severely affected mm. but there has been some wonderful creativity on display too yeah. what have you made of the way so many musicians including those in the brass band world have embraced technology to keep the music playing I think it's been remarkable. I think when we look back on this period, I think we will see how resourceful and skillful and imaginative and dedicated people have been to keep the music playing um, and learning new skills. I, I mean, to be honest, I'd, I'd made a few videos, but very um, simple ones. And then all of a sudden I start to see people playing duets from all around the world. And I think, okay, we're going to record that. We do the video here and took advice, spoke to people, bought some microphones, downloaded some software. And then you see, you know, when the, when the Corey band first video came out of the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, it's like, OK, that raises the bar pretty consistently. And uh, and they've kept doing it since then. You know, the last one I saw of them, the uh, Vivaldi Four Seasons was just fantastic. And then and then you see with the, the Corey band and uh, brass competition, the brass band competition. I mean, just some fantastic, beautiful ideas, rather than just, you know, players filling the screen, some really beautiful things. And that has to have a, a positive spin-off for how we do things in the future. You know, I think bands will, will need an online presence in the future, as well as hopefully playing for people in halls like we've always done and playing in parks in the summer. I think the fact that you can you can just move this beautiful creative project right into somebody's front lounge into their into their studio onto their computer and you can play it over and over again uh we would never have imagined a year ago that bands would be doing that so i th i think that's been really great i did some videos for besson did some stuff with a, a group that i called the european the besson european euphonium ensemble and so just called up players from all over europe 16 and then 24 and 26 players and said are you would you fancy this absolutely yes so people initially recording just with their mobile phones well since then most people have you know flashy microphones and all sorts of things that make things sound even better but yeah look the human being is a very resourceful animal i mean you, you take away one thing and we learn skills in other areas you know so it, it didn't surprise me, but you couldn't imagine it because none of us planned. If, it's, if they'd have said two years ago, you know, in 2020, you're all going to have to do this, we'd have all planned for it, but we adapted quickly to survive. <laughs> you're right. No one could have envisaged this situation and, and so much praise is due to those who have helped innovate. And you mentioned Corey, but also for inspiring others to get yeah. involved in the yeah. action too. Yeah. Stephen, this time of the year would normally be very busy on the contest front in the UK, of course, mm. jumping from the British Open to the national finals, events like Brass in Concert too. There's considerable uncertainty over many more events. Now the regionals have been cancelled for 2021. And in between all that, the festive period is usually huge for brass yeah. bands. Yeah. As far as the UK is concerned, are you able to see some sort of route forward at present or is it just a bit too early? I think it's too early at the moment. I, I mean, as I say, I'm, I'm an optimistic type person by nature and I always have been. But until we can get a, a handle on this virus, until we have a vaccine, until a large percentage of the population have access to it, and so long as the, the damn thing doesn't mutate so that vaccines don't work... I think we are going to have to concentrate on ensemble things, you know. We, we have to do what we can do. The worst thing we can do is stop playing and give up hope. What's the maximum we can do and everybody be safe and be, and be comfortable? Well, of course, online projects. It almost means that every band needs a technical guru who can make them sound half decent. 
or find one. And, you know, it seems like a few bands that we've talked about and Foden's also have got in-house skill, but there are one or two bands that obviously don't have people that can tie this together. So um, I think we need to collaborate with, with people that have those skills so that we can keep the music playing. We are allowed uh, groups of six. And so I think if bands can think about keeping some ensemble skills going within the full band until they're able to meet, I think is important, you know? We used to do a lot more quartet playing in the old days anyway. And there's a fantastic uh, brass quintet repertoire out there, brass sextet. I think we will adapt to that. I think bands honestly thought that by October, we would be starting to meet up. Talk about the rug being pulled from underneath us. I mean, some people predicted this um, second upsurge of the of the virus but then when you look at the small print and look at the detail actually it's not the same as as March there's a ton more testing going on and I think although it's scary and we do need to double down and, and get on top of this I think it all depends if we go through a full lockdown or not but um, I do hope that we can do small group playing, distanced, and and learn new skills, you know. When I, I seem to remember in 1990 when I was left a whole load of low brass music by a wonderful American guy called Winston Morris. And he said, Stephen, Stephen Mead, he had his beautiful uh, Tennessee accent, here's some music here. And, and so I said, look, I promise I'll get some guys around the house. And I invited three of my low brass buddies and within... A couple of days, we'd formed the British Tuba Quartet, which ran for 10 years and made six CDs and did 12 tours and entertained a lot of people. And it, it happened by accident because we had this music that we wanted to try out. So I think everyone in the band movement should think, what can they do? Hanging up their instrument really shouldn't be one of them. So I've tried to do online classes. Other people have done online classes to try and motivate people, provide online you know, exercises online. There's online solo competitions now. So there's lots of good stuff out there. But I like people that that have a positive spirit rather than say, you know what, I'm not going back until I know it's completely safe. It'll never be completely safe now. Uh, and that's the reality. And, and so either those people need to become more positive and say, look, okay, well, I understand that we can't meet as a band, but let's do this. Because we, you know, the brass band movement is so incredibly special. You know, I don't need to tell you that or the people that are listening, but we can't just let it slip through our fingers because we can't say in three years time, we only now have 40% of the bands that we had three years ago. What a terrible situation that would be. So for me, Mark, these next three or four months are really important. I think once we get into the new year and the cases are down in numbers uh, and the government start to relax the guidelines, then we can quickly see our way back looking a bit like normal. Everyone I meet, all the students I meet with the online classes, it's like, come on, let's get through this, you know, in... In five and ten years' time, we'll be the hero generation that battled through this. And I think you've just got to imagine that, that we can be. We can be strong and we can be brave and we will be fine. Is there an argument to say that this pause in traditional proceedings should maybe offer an opportunity for band associations, contest administrators and so on to take stock and reflect on what's working and what isn't and mm. perhaps look to influence some positive change? Yeah, I I totally agree with that. But I, I think most people at the moment are so con, so health conscious and concerned about doing the right thing that the idea of doing something really proactive, you know, is is perhaps not top of the agenda right now. But I I really think it could be. I think we have a, a unique opportunity in these months. I've chucked my uh, towel in the ring on some issues in the past, and you know things that I've, I've believed in strongly, you know, contest adjudication and things like that. Um, and I'll keep doing that and keep talking to people that want to talk about it. But um, the kind of things you're suggesting, I think really should be being done. On the subject of taking stock and reflecting, as you mentioned, you've long been an advocate of moving to a more criteria-based 
system of adjudication. Is that still something, Stephen, you would like to see given greater prominence? Yeah, I mean, my, my feeling since 10 years is that this is the way forwards. But one thing you can't do to a traditional brass band movement is ram anything down anyone's throat because it doesn't happen. I think there has to be a growing consensus and I think there is a growing consensus that some kind of transparent level playing field marking system for brass band contests is a good idea. And the number of people who object to it or seem to find arguments against it are becoming less. Um, I had the opportunity, which unfortunately didn't happen, to speak to the Association of Brass Band Adjudicators at the meeting in January. I had a, a family crisis that came up unfortunately the same week and I couldn't do it I was invited to to do a proposal and a demonstration how it would work and I hope very very soon that we can we can do that again so the very the very decision makers um, involved with with brass band contest could actually be convinced that um, maybe we should at least trial this that I would I would never say right from 2022 we need to judge like this I would say uh, contest organizers need to be braver. Bands, supporters who write, write to me in their droves to say, Steve, why on earth aren't they using your system? You know, it's such a fair and, and open system as they have done in other countries. And But I think it will come. Uh, Mark, I'm not sure. I think I'll probably be dead before it's universally accepted. And then you can call it the Mead Memorial System <laughs> or something like that. The more I looked at how we adjudicate and I have to say you know the modern uh, association of brass band adjudicators are a very good bunch there's some really talented people in there um, but the way that we've judged is a system and I think that there is a better one and this this showing transparently how we've reached our decision what we liked and what we didn't like without just being writing pages of A4 I think there's a much better way of doing it why do you feel that that is a more appropriate system than the, the traditional blank canvas with the sheets of paper there? Is there an argument to say adjudicators will be listening out for many of those criteria anyway during the performance? Yes, I'm sure they are. I mean, maybe not all of them and maybe not in a, in a consistent way. If you're comparing band number 16 with band number four, you know, with six hours between, and when you read the comments, you actually don't actually read much difference then if you looked at a score chart and said this band scored eight and a half for accuracy and this band scored eight for accuracy and this band scored nine for soloists and this band seven and um, the musicality displayed by the conductor the shaping the phrases was the same but this band had a much better control of over dynamics they didn't overblow for example then okay overall it may be very close but you could say well that's why this band got two more points than this band and that's why they got three more points than band number three and this is why they were not as good as band number 10 who scored you know 196 and what i found by doing the tests is that using that system band number one came out and played okay and got 172 points and at the end of the day the lowest score was 140 and the highest score was 196. And the placings worked out that 172 was about right for band number one. Not like let's listen to five bands and then decide. And then everything shuffles up and down. And then unfortunately, the bands that play early, you know, shuffle to the bottom because the, the, the ladder effect tends to work with, oh, that's nice. We'll just move the others down. When you work to a system, Mark, you work to the fact that band number one could win the contest and score highly on all these according to the criteria. And that's the, that's the essential element. You look at all the results from contests the past 10 years, the British Open and, 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 uh, and at the Nationals and probably the Regionals. Where do most of the bands come? They come between band number eight and band number 15 when you have like a 18... And that's not because they're there, that's because as a day goes on, familiarity and so forth. So I really believe that it's a better system. And I also believe that for lower section bands, it's educational. You know, you can read the judge's comment like, nice opening, well done troms, percussion too loud, this is fast, this writ was maybe overdone, uh, ensemble problems here, watch tuning in the SOP. And then what are you gonna rehearse? 
in the next, you know, okay, watch your tuning sop. Um, well done, trombones. How do you build from that? If you've got a, then a, a 10 point score, which shows that your the sound quality of the band wasn't rated that highly, or that you weren't accurate, or that the tuning was good, but didn't, you know, do you can see what you can work on? Now, I judged a few contests, lower section contests, and, and conductors took the trouble to write to me and said, this is brilliant. We've got four weeks before the area. We know exactly what we need to work on. Now, that was just my opinion on one day. Now, you imagine you had two judges or three judges using that, then you and you could see bands could see exactly what they need to work on. So I, for me, it's a positive thing. Yes, on the day, it's easy to separate for an adjudicator because you're working to a system. And, you know, okay, in a, in a top championship section band, they're not going to say, right, we've read the remarks, we know what we need to work on because the very top bands have their own dynamic and their own way of working. But I think for lower section bands that are ambitious and would like to develop, I think it's fantastic. Let's turn our attention now, though, to your piece of the podcast. Here mm. you have your very own blank canvas to share with us a work of your choosing. So just before we get listening to this piece, tell me why you've chosen it. Well, the last solo CD that I made, which was uh, in June last year, was with the Brighouse and Rastrick Band. It's been a few years since I recorded with a brass band. I did a lot of recordings with the Fairy Band in the 1990s. Uh, on the polyphonic label with with uh, Howard Snell and uh, with Philips, Philip Spark producing and Mike Moore and just really great times. And I did lots of recordings with wind orchestra, which I enjoyed and different ensembles. I had this desire to record with a top English band. I'd record with brass band Bausingen in Belgium and other bands. Um, I contacted the band to see if they were interested. Uh, David Thornton was then the resident conductor. He loved the project. So I had a few pieces. Most of my albums have been driven by the need to record certain bits of repertoire that come my way. And when I look at them together, I think, well, this would make a good CD. I don't kind of make a CD by searching for stuff. The repertoire is there. And I had, I'd had the UFO Concerto by Johan de Mai in my library for a few years. And... I've played some tough concertos, but this physically uh, and as a monumental piece of writing was, was really like a, a Mount Everest, which I hadn't climbed. I'd looked up it <laughs> and I'd heard other people who would played it and, and uh, tried to play it in live concerts. It's a very physical work, you know, so the whole thing is, is around 23, 24 minutes. It's in five movements. And Johan de Mai always thinks on a grand scale. I mean, he's he's like a, a latter-day Berlioz in terms of writing gargantuan structures. And um, so it's, it's extremely physical, has some totally memorable moments, uh, dramatic moments, emotional moments, high-wire moments. And it was just too good an opportunity. So when we came to the recording, we had about about uh, nine works but the the UFO concerto kind of towered above it all and when we made the recording plan we decided that we'd leave it till the second day which was a bit dangerous really but we managed to get all but three pieces done on the Saturday Sunday morning we started with a nice gentle piece and then up came the UFO concerto and uh, so from around 10 in the morning till around 2.15, we had a break for lunch. So we got it done fairly quickly. But the band were magnificent. Uh, Brickhouse are a very hard-working, wonderful-sounding band. And, and pleasure to work with David Thornton, who was then the resident conductor. Yeah, we tackled the mountain. We, um, we went to Everest and got to the top and put the flag in the top. Without any further ado, let's listen to Stephen Mead and the Brickhouse and Rastrick Band performing Johan de Mai's UFO Concerto.
Thank <laughs> you. 
from euphonium soloist Stephen Mead and the Brighouse and Rastrick band the UFO Concerto a major work from Johan de Mai and conducting was David Thornton Stephen thank you for that but let's take a little look back now at your own career tell me about your your musical origin story as it were and how you and the euphonium came to find each other I have to think way back <laughs> so I, I grew up uh, in Bournemouth on the south coast and uh, my family was and still are largely members of the Salvation Army. So for my earliest musical memories involve singing, choirs and, and brass bands. Really right, I can remember things that happened when I was three and four years old that involved music. So there was music all around me and um, although there was a little bit of music in my school, in my primary school and junior school, 
it was it was the fantastic music, the singing and the playing that I heard at the Salvation Army every Sunday that really attracted me to music, to try and excel in music. My earliest memory really was, was hearing the Boscombe Salvation Army band playing hymns on a Sunday morning. And uh, I just said to my parents, I want to be in the junior band. I want to be in the junior band. Well, you can't, you can't do that till you're five. The YP band lead is going to give you an instrument on your fifth birthday. Uh, and he did. He gave me a, a little cornet in a brown leather case on a Sunday afternoon around six o'clock. And uh, the band was marching down the street. And I ran down the street and marched with the band holding the case that I'd just been given before I'd even opened it. And there was, I, I think that's whenever I hear a band marching, I have this unbelievable sense of pride and excitement about a marching band. It's strange. It's never left me from, from that time. So I started playing a brass instrument. I also sang a lot. So my parents organized singing lessons for me with a local singing teacher, obviously as a boy soprano, from the age of five to about 12. And uh, I moved through the ranks of the junior band from cornet to tenor horn to baritone and then euphonium when I was 11. I don't know why they moved me. I guess they just thought I preferred low notes to high notes or something. But once I got to euphonium, something resonated uh, with me and uh, an, an amazing kind of discovery at the age of 12 that I totally love this instrument, that I, I listen to brass music and euphonium players daily you know four hours to get this this knowledge and sound and feeling in my head uh and and the yp band the junior band in boscombe was fantastic i mean it was really uh, and sadly there were you know such a long time ago there's no videos or recordings but i remember we had a you know a junior band of, of 20 24 players and we used to we used to do away weekends as they call them in the Salvation Army, and 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 almost every concert the conduct the conductor asked me to stand up and play solos. So the idea of being a soloist really was from the age of, you know, eleven, twelve, thirteen, and then I joined um, Boscombe Salvation Army Senior Band uh, with a wonderful Jeff Otter who was the bandmaster, and he gave me a lot of solo opportunities as a youngster. And I joined the National Youth Brass Band fairly late. I think I was 15, nearly 16 by the time I joined it. And then I suddenly realized that the, the big banding world up north um, was, was really good. And the young players were really good and had such a passion of playing in bands. And so, you know, when my careers teacher asked me age 16, you know, so Mead, what are you going to do? You know, you, obviously you like your music, don't you? I said, yes, sir, I'm going to be a euphonium player. And he's, I could see him nervously looking through his book of careers, you know, checking, <laughs> checking the index. Well, I, I, I don't think you're going to be able to do that. I think you, maybe, maybe you could play the tuba. You could be in an orchestra. You know, the typical kind of careers teacher has some vague idea of the music profession, but not much. So I said, oh, no, tuba's way too big. So we, we just drifted on the next few years. Um, Young Musician of the Year competition came along, and I took part in that. A couple of years, got to the semi-final, and I think it was the year that Elaine Wolf won it on Cornet, way back when, people will remember that. Uh, Michael Hext had already won it on trombone, so there was precedent set. But um, And then I applied to go to the Royal Academy, because I did my audition for the Young Musician of the Year there, so I knew the place, I thought, this is fantastic. And so I did an audition, and they wrote back to me and said, um, we don't recognize the euphonium suitable for professional study would you like to change to the tuba and i said no i don't think i will thank you very much i applied to the guild hall anyway i ended up going to bristol university coming under the spell of dr derek bourgeois who was just the most wonderful guy that i enjoyed meeting every day his humor his love of brass bands of course his love of, of composition and he encouraged me he arranged euphonium lesson with for me um with john fletcher in london you know just got on the train met him at the barbican played talked and you know so my destiny as euphonium player was was kind of inescapable but even then when i left bristol university having been joined the sun life band and started to make a bit of a name for myself outside the salvation army there was still no clear um route forward so 
everything changed when I got a call from Howard Snell saying, would you like to join the Desford Colliery Band? Um, I was then doing a year's teacher training college in Bath once I'd finished at Bristol. And I said, I'd love to join your band, Howard. Um, I've heard recordings. It's the one band I'm interested in. They were, Desford Band in 81, 82 were really starting to make their mark. You know, this exciting, amazing ensemble, brilliant players, you know, the charismatic Howard Snell in charge, you know. So I said, look, I'll come up, but I need to get a job. So I, he let me stay at his house for six weeks in the, in the summer. Uh, and I got a job in Burton-on-Trent as a high school teacher. And uh, I drew a line between Burton-on-Trent and the Desford Colliery Band, found the village of Meesham and bought a house in between. <laughs> so it was life was very simple. Then. <laughs> so I, I had a double life. I mean, playing in Desford Band and Desford Band 83, 84, as, as people will remember, up to 89 when I left, when they did the hat trick. It was just the most amazing time. I mean, it was my life was the band, my job was the school, and and the kids at school got into brass bands. We had a fantastic band at the DeFerris High School, and uh, some of them even joined Desford. You know, in the championship band of 1986, I think there was three of my high school band actually playing in Desford band, which was it was just a, a magical time. But but I knew that with the way that music education was changing, um, talk of having the euphonium at music conservatories, there were some unique opportunities in my way. And so um, I had regular chats with the headmaster at DeFerris High School, a wonderful Welshman called Brian Hughes, who is still with us, thank goodness. He's, he's quite elderly now, but um, he'd given me the opportunity to take time out to go to Japan for a week, to go to America, uh, but and eventually we, we had to realize that the career was going to move on to the next um, phase. So I ended up teaching euphonium at the Royal Academy 10 years after they said, go to hell. Um, and uh, also the Birmingham Conservatory and the Scottish Academy. So I was really multitasking uh, in the course of a week. I was doing three schools, you know, at opposite ends of the country and then concentrated on Birmingham and, uh, and the Royal Northern and then even though uh, Birmingham is closer to my house, uh, since 30 years now, I've been teaching at the Royal Northern College of Music. So I know every centimeter of the M6 motorway really well. <laughs> Plus it's 50 mile an hour speed limits for the last five years. So was it quite a natural evolution then from your, your teaching career and the band work in which you're involved, gradually working your way to become the solo performer, of course, which you've developed such a wonderful career in. I mean, I enjoyed playing solos since I was a kid, as I said, in, at, at Boscombe, but I think it was the only way that I could do it and actually be a professional, you know? So if, if you, you know, I don't want to talk numbers and money because at Desford we got zero money and I never was interested in money because the band was the band, you know. But once you say it's going to be your job, then you have to think, you know, without being too blunt, who's going to pay you, you know. And so they don't pay you to come and play second euphonium in a band, you know, to help them out for a contest. You, you're either going to be a soloist and a, a prominent teacher um, or you're going to end up doing something else and do it for a hobby. And I, I just found, as I traveled so far, you know, from, from my teenage years to going through college through Desford. So the, by the time I left Desford, I, did, I started doing some freelance guesting, I suppose, uh, with the GUS band. And then we had seven or eight very happy years, Roger Webster and I, with the CWS Glasgow band, where we flew or drove up there for about seven weeks of the year doing the major contests. We were loved by the CWS band and hated by everyone else in Scotland. You know, the, I won't repeat some of the lovely descriptions we had given to us, but centered around the word mercenaries. And, and now, you know, I, I feel really uncomfortable when I see that bands are doing that. But during the 90s, we did it, you know. I think there was, maybe there was more um, available cash to to spend on principal players but you know it was it was a great time and Roger and I got to know Scotland and the Scottish scene and being in the centre of Glasgow you know we learned lots of things about life that we didn't know before. 
<laughs> I'm sure you probably did. Throughout your career, you've played a major role in extending and developing the repertoire of the mm. euphonium. How much importance have you placed on widening the selection of music that's available for your instrument? Mm. Well, see, this was always an objection why the conservatories and the universities wouldn't take the euphonium seriously because we didn't have proper music. We had band solos, you know, we we had suitcases full of theme and variation solos and classical slow melodies and, and some novelettes and things like that. But I guess I've just been lucky to be alive at a time when the, you know, the euphonium came of age, um, the situation for the euphonium improved and, com and good composers started writing good music for us. And once, once you have eight or 10 concertos and 25 sonatas and lots of really interesting pieces and contemporary pieces, pieces with electronics, then everybody takes you more seriously. And uh, you can go to music festivals and play concertos with orchestras. So, um, and, and it was my connection with composers that's perhaps had the most difference in terms of, you know, the legacy I can leave for euphonium players in the future, for low brass players, you know, my connection with Philip Spark, you know, I have three concertos now and a, and a fourth one that he's writing for my 60th birthday in two years time. And lots of other composers, you know, um, Rolf Rudin, you know, in Germany wrote the Hallows Concerto for me with Symphony Orchestra, which for me is one of the greatest works that we have uh, for the euphonium and, and lots of other pieces with piano. Um, you know, I've, I totaled, I think, over 300, 350 pieces that I've had a hand in. Now, there are lots of performers doing it now. You know, David Childs has a fantastic connection with some composers. David Thornton has done some great work with composers. And then far afield, you know, Thomas Rudy in Switzerland, Bastien Baume in France, Demandre Thurman in America, Japanese. So we've all been riding this wave of musical evolution that happened through the 80s and the 90s that benefited the euphonium and i really hope that it will go on you know i really hope it will go on into the future being in japan with peter graham uh, premiering his in league with extraordinary gentlemen with the osaka municipal band just just magical important days a new piece with a great composer with a band far away and now everyone in the world starts to get to know that piece you know so the premieres were were important. I mean, being being in in uh, Japan also with the Breeze Brass Band and Philip Spark premiering the Euphonium Concerto Number no. One. Then coming to the UK and playing at the, uh, the short concert before the results at the Albert Hall, and then me performing pantomime with them with Philip Spark conducting. I mean, it's just just so many moments in my life that I'd love to watch on rewind and be very proud about them. You know. You mentioned a few names there of other prominent euphonium players. Mm. As you look around today and as you do some listening of your own, what do you make of the standard of euphonium playing in bands and from other soloists around the world? Well, I, I don't think it's ever been higher. And I, I think because of the popularity of the euphonium, we have a lot of students that have started taking the euphonium very seriously at a very young age. You know, I, I remember working with a... 13-year-old Glenn Van Loy, you know, his dad brought him to a master class and, oh, this lad's, this lad's good of you, this lad, he can play a little bit, you know. You see what he's doing now, you know, and, and so many great band players we have in the UK, you know, obviously people like Glenn Williams at, at Corey, you know, the, the level of professionalism that he keeps up with that band is is really, really extraordinary, you know, with the likes of Dan Thomas at Black Dyke, you know, that this is the... The generation I think that benefited from, you know, my generation and, and David Childs. People want their gigs, you know, they'll never say it to your face, but they'd love to. And I say to a student at the RNCM, honestly, what would you like to do? And some of them say, I want to do what you're doing. And it's, I shake their hand or bump their elbow now uh, and wish them luck and, and, and just let them know that yes anything is possible but the amount of commitment and the amount of hard work and practice that you do it's not for a year it's not for three years it's not for 10 years if you want to do this and build a career 
you have to be relentless you know i i practiced four hours a day since i was 13 years old you know i could have done lots of other things in that time but i have no regrets whatsoever and now i enjoy it i practice to maintain i practice to relax i practice as a, a mental challenge i practice for fear of not making a fool of myself in public you know and you never stop learning i'm still i still have the youthful enthusiasm you know of a 13 year old glenn van loy or a you know 12 year old david childs when they first made their names for themselves and i think it's amazing i mean i'm so happy when in fact i had a, a guy from uh, australia said steve do you mind if I, you don't know me i'm a tenor horn teacher or french horn teacher i need to tell you about a young man and he told me about a young man who's um, 14 years old in Australia who says it's the greatest young player that he's ever heard and he wants him to come to the RNCM in four years time and so I'm, I'm starting to make contact so that's incredibly exciting you know everyone has a chance but when you when these real diamond players come through and you can see their careers progress it's it's really wonderful just to sum up then Stephen, you're this international soloist, you've been a real trailblazer and continue to do so. You're a teacher, you've been involved in the design of new instruments, mouthpieces, you have these long-standing relationships with Besson and Dennis Wick, there's your conducting mm. work, your adjudicating work. Just how much do you relish the variety that you have in your artistic life? Honestly, I, when people say, you know, you know, how do you feel? I think I'm the luckiest person that I know. Uh, the amount of different things I've been able to do. Unfortunately, conducting has, has been on the back burner, really, the last eight years. I, I did enjoy that, and I would like to do it again in the future. But, you know, you get to a certain age and you start conducting. People say, oh, do you still play? Yeah. Uh, and that got so frustrating, I stopped conducting. <laughs> I would like to write music. That's that's the missing part of the jigsaw because I have so many musical ideas going around in my head and I hear great music and think, you know, I'd love to write something like that. And Because once you've been around for a while, you get more opportunities. And I think what I've tried to do is to, in, you know, take advantage of those opportunities. So I first started working with Besson in around 1985 and um, I remember doing a few concerts for them in 86 and going to Spain and doing the first workshop and I went to Japan in 91 for the first time to America in 1990 so all of that's 30 30 years plus but I've I still have a closer and closer connection to the companies because I've been loyal to them and they've been loyal to me and loyalty is incredibly important I don't move a lot you know i'm in the house the same house that i moved in in 1990 i'm sitting in the same music room that i've sat in for 30 years because i love it and if i was if i was a restless spirit i'd be moving house every four years i'd be doing some trombone i'd you know go and live in new zealand for a while and whatever but i i just love what i do and and because it's important i work hard so that i can keep doing it a bit longer <laughs> That's it for this episode of BB On The Record. Thank you to Stephen Mead and thank you to you for listening. You can enjoy a digital subscription to British Bandsmen. It costs just £42.99 for one year. Go to BritishBandsmen.com and click on subscribe. Do get in touch about anything you might have heard on the podcast. You can email info at BritishBandsmen.com. That's info at BritishBandsmen.com. As for this podcast, you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. Join me next time on BB On The Record. Bye for now. Bye.